Life Jitsu, Art of Life, Frank Carreri Forza. I'm here today. I have a guest, Brooke Conway Clevin. She is, I think, 28 years old. She just earned a doctorate in physical therapy. She is working on a second doctorate, a dual doctorate, in global health uh, epidemiology. 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 <laughs> That's a big word. Not a word I pronounce all the time. She's a mom of two. And the interesting thing with Brooke is, and by the way, we're, we're near some tennis courts, so I hope you appreciate that background. The interesting thing about Brooke is, I do not know Brooke very well. Uh, I do know her husband in a general way. I see him around my gym, really good looking guy, super fit, uh, really knows what he's doing as a trainer. And just through conversations with him, his name is Elliot Clevin, I have come to know, he, he always talks about his wife, Brooke and how strong she is as a person and how much he admires her and uh, just sort of you know she's had a lot on her plate a lot of life challenges and she is a very strong person so that coming from Elliot Clevin just looking at the way that he does things and goes about his business and how you know uh, how masterful he is with training that that carried a lot of weight so I thought wow he's piqued my curiosity I want to definitely interview Brooke. So this is like a year, year and a half ago. Finally, today, we have Brooke Conway Clevin here with us. And basically, this podcast is going to, we're going in cold, we're going in spontaneous and improvisational the way I like it, because I've been doing this a long time. So I don't know a lot. I don't know five minutes worth of Brooke Conway Clevin's life. I don't. I'm eager to hear it. We're going to talk about life obstacles we're going to talk about mental toughness we're going to talk about grit we're going to talk about health and wellness since brooke has went down that rabbit hole and it's so important to her and her own health her own thriving her own surviving so we're going to talk about a lot of great things i don't know brooke conway clevin but i promise you this uh i have a i have good instincts and i believe that she's going to uh She's going to have a very great story. I need to do a better job telling the story of women from women's perspectives in their own words, and this helps me do that. Brooke, thank you so much. Welcome to uh, the Life Jitsu Podcast. Thank you. So let's start with this. Elliot's always telling me, my wife is, is so strong. She's the toughest person that I know. You've had your share of challenges. Do you feel okay talking about maybe some of the things that have been, that, have been, uh, that, that life has, has thrown at you? Yeah, absolutely. I I'm an open book. <laughs> now, what you you didn't go then? This doctor of physical therapy—that's not by accident. Is that personal as well as professional? Was that personally inspired? Yeah, I ever since I was a kid was planning on going to med school, and that was kind of from as little from the minute I could walk, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. And then through college, I started getting sick. Um, when I was in high school. I had some tumors on my thyroid that started changing a lot of stuff. I had some surgery because of that. And then after that point, I just never really felt better. I always felt sick and anytime I'd see a doctor, they'd be like, oh, it's your thyroid. You don't have a thyroid anymore. It's that, it's hormones. And it just kept getting worse. And then my interest kind of started changing because by the end of college, when my senior year, I started getting really sick. And I was, prior to that, just planning on going directly to med school right after undergrad. And I kind of just started changing my mind, thinking maybe I'm overworking myself, maybe 
I literally had a doctor tell me, oh, that's why women aren't as good at sports as men because their bodies change and they just aren't good anymore And once they go through puberty. And, like, literally I had doctors telling me, like, you're a female, so you're not as good at stuff. And finally, like, by my senior year of college, I was, like, I wouldn't say I was believing them, but I was, like, you know, maybe I am overdoing it a bit. Maybe I'll take a year off, apply to med school later, you know, just see if I can work on my health. So I took some time off after undergrad. What did, what did you study in undergrad? Uh, sports med and neuroscience. Okay. So I went to... And you were already on that path before the doctors were telling you... Correct. ...that you were sick, you have a thyroid, this, and you mm -hmm. were having those serious issues. Yeah. You were, it was already a seed in your mind, I want to be a doctor, I want to be in medicine. Absolutely. And that was from, like I said, as far back as I can remember, like kids always have their dream of what they want to be. From as far as I can remember, I always told my parents I want to be a doctor. That's it's just, not something that they, for, you know, no. you know, the parents proverbially, yeah. they force it on the kids. So, Like, my younger brother would fall and scratch his knee. My mom hated blood, so I would, being three years old, run and clean his leg up. You know, like, I just, for some reason, I loved it. So you were worried a little bit about, the, because studying medicine is so intensive, and because you wanted to get well, mm -hmm. there was maybe a conflict in you, like, well, maybe instead of focus on medicine right now, maybe I just need to try to get well, Correct. even though the doctors don't have answers for you. Yeah. So the doctors sort of, I'm gonna call it sort of the runaround, where you're looking for answers, you're looking for solutions, you're not getting them to your satisfaction. Did you start to feel like I have to take matters in my own hand? In other words, I need to become the best researcher of this. I need to take things into my own hand, Absolutely. arm myself with the best information because they don't have, they're not giving me the solutions. Yeah. And that's when, after I moved to Vegas, that's when that shift changed because it went from having a lot of trust in doctors when I lived in San Francisco in undergrad. Then I moved to Vegas and a lot of my trust in doctors went away. And to be honest, that's when I started deciding I didn't want to go to med school because I, to be honest, just despised the medical community so much because how could they not figure this out, you know? And it ended up getting to the point that I, one night was sitting on the couch and couldn't get up. And mm -hmm. Elliot looked at me and he laughed. He's like, well, you want me to help you up? And I was like, no, literally I can't move. And from the waist down, I couldn't move for, probably a couple hours. And how old were you then? That was about five years ago. And so you were, your solution though was, was, was it in your own hands? Were you having to Google, you're Googling a bunch of things? What are mm. you, how, how are you going about the process of wellness? Are you just, you're radically changing your nutrition program? You're looking for answers where? Yeah, I mean, at that point I had done a lot. I nutritionally physically everything like I've always been more on the end of always paying attention to that stuff but finally once that happened that night I finally agreed so finally at that point finally at that point is when I agreed to go to Mayo Clinic so in I, Phoenix yep so I went to Mayo Clinic in Phoenix about four and a half five years ago and that began a process of what, you, you started to get well? <laughs> no. So I went there and the first doctor I saw <laughs> literally didn't even read my medical records, anything. He just looks at me, looks at my personality and goes, hmm, you remind me a lot of my wife. And I was like, well, that's not against HIPAA or anything. Um, and he proceeded to tell me that I had a type A personality and that's why I was sick because I 
put too much stress on myself and it was more psychosomatic issues unfolding as portraying themselves as physical problems. And I was like, so you're saying it's in my head why a couple weeks ago I couldn't walk. And he indirectly told me, yeah. <laughs> and he canceled all my appointments with all the other specialists at Mayo Clinic and sent me to a psychiatrist. <laughs> and the psychiatrist looked at me and was like, all right, I'll be frank with you. Why the hell are you here? And I was like, good question. I was wondering the same thing. And we talked for a while. And by the end of the hour with him, he literally told me, yeah, I don't know why you're here. And I was like, either do I. And I just had this weird gut feeling, weird, you know, because I couldn't walk. I was like, it's got to be something neurological. So I went at Mayo Clinic and sat in the neurology department until they had a no-show and they let me go in. So I sat there literally for six hours one day till someone just didn't show up for their appointment. And I went in and saw this neurologist and he ended up doing an MRI and they found a brain tumor. And he was like, well, it's a small tumor. It's, it doesn't look malignant. Let's just watch it, see what happens. I came back home to Vegas, told my endocrinologist about the situation, and ironically, my endocrinologist, his PA was a PA for a neurosurgeon prior to working for the endocrinologist, and she kind of popped her head in, heard the situation, and she goes, I don't think it's because of a brain tumor. I think it's, and she like kind of started putting the things together. Long story short, they sent me to this neurosurgeon, he found out it wasn't purely because of the brain tumor, it was actually a birth defect, and the problems had just kind of unfolded for so long, for so many years, that because of the high pressures in my head, a tumor had started to form. So So you didn't have that tumor, to your to your belief, you didn't have that tumor in, when you were a teenager, that tumor had developed maybe over time. That's what they think, yeah. So... And that tumor was roughly how big? Uh, I was... It wasn't even, in, like I said, the neurologist in his fancy words said it's tiny. So to be honest, they kind of never thought much else about that after. You, you did, did you ever have that tumor removed? Uh, yes, I had my first brain surgery in July of 2013. They did a decompression surgery. and They make a hole? Or? Um, yeah, they go up through the back of your head, like through the foramen magnum, so the big opening in your skull and they went in and opened up the dura, which is the pretty much like the protective coating of your brain, and they opened the dura up, um, removed some skull, and then sewed in actually a patch in the dura to open up more space for my brain. Because I have what's called the Chiari malformation, which is where your brain actually herniates down into your spinal cord. So, so again, the assumption is for people who aren't very familiar with brain surgery, that that's a dangerous, that's a that's a very high <laughs> risk, dangerous surgery on many levels. Yeah. One, they could just, you know, not just death, but they could permanently mess something up going in there to be depressed. Uh, it's a very high risk surgery. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't because of the surgery, but I ended up having a stroke after my first surgery. So that's kind of when the cascade hit of a lot of other issues, <laughs> to say the least. So you've been dealing with these serious medical issues for how many years now? Um, since I was 15. So it's been 10 plus years. So, but like I said, that was when the 
when I was 15 was the thyroid thing. And then it kind of, from that point, things just kept getting worse. So this originally was something that to the doctors, to you, it's just mysterious, like, well, what's going on? I don't, you yeah. know, and, and you're playing catch up maybe even for years, not getting yeah. the answers. And so that, in, in a way, for, for people listening to, I know just from my injuries in the fight sports, that is so mentally tough when you don't have a handle mm-hmm. on what's going on. Absolutely. Right? It's, it's so much, um, it's so much, you know, when what we all want to hear is we want to hear a doctor say, it's this and this is what we're going to do. Yeah. And when you're going for years and years and you're not getting a conclusive or you know, because you sort mm-hmm. of have an instinct like, they have not even defined it, right? It's like it's like somebody having, like saying, "I want to get to wherever." They have no, they don't know where the goal is, right? They exactly. don't know the destination. It's yeah. like, well, where are you where are you headed to? What's your goal? I don't know. They don't really know. <laughs> so it's like until the doctors can firmly, like to your satisfaction too, say, "This is absolutely what it is. This is what we're going to do to treat it," and then you would start to hopefully see progress. That yeah. just never happens. So for years and years and years, you're going, and it's like not getting better. You yeah. wind up with oh, how many brain surgeries, by the way. Uh, three. So before brain surgery, you you had your kids. You've already had you, you already had your kids when you had the brain surgery. Uh, our son is my husband's biologically, and we adopted our daughter. Okay. Yeah. Um, I can't have kids. You can't. It was that a result of any of the procedures yeah. and everything too. Yeah. And so that's got to be hard as a as a woman too. I mean, I'm assuming maybe that that mm-hmm. was hard. Like when the doctor tells you. Yeah, it's funny. Like I was telling my husband. I never was one of those, I mean, I love my children more than anything, so I don't want this taken the wrong way, but I was always one of those people, if I was with a person who didn't want kids, I would never have been one of those people that it would have been a deal breaker, you know, like, having children was never, like, my number one priority in life, which, now having my kids, I would never trade it for the world, but it's funny, because as soon as you're told by a doctor, you can't have kids, all of a sudden, I'm like, wait, but I want kids, like, what? You know, like, as soon as you're told you can't have it, all of a sudden, like, that was a hard thing to take, like... It's like a right being stripped mm-hmm. from you. Like, yeah. you, you still would have had that choice, and it's like it's being just just taken from Yeah, you. and it was really weird for me, because going from the person who wasn't always, like, my goal was never to be, quote, a mom, you know, like, I wasn't that woman or kid growing up, like, knowing that that was my end goal in life, and then all of a sudden, as soon as I'm told that it can't be, all of a sudden, it's like, wait, but that's that's what I want you know it's like that weird it's just a weird feeling of something that I guess it's just once you're told you can't have it then all of a sudden it changes your aspect how old were you when the doctors told you that that was probably four four years ago maybe because after I had a stroke they had I had a stroke because the pressures were too high in my head and they were unable to control it, so they ended up having to put a shunt in. And because of a lot of hormonal issues, hormones can affect the pressures in your head. So, yeah, it just kind of was a weird cascade of things. But so, what's inter- so when you when it comes to the brain surgeries, like I'm always and I've had five surgeries, much less. Much my surgeries are babies compared to to Brooks. Um, but it's always interesting, say the night before a surgery or the day of a surgery, because it's kind of like, kind of like if you're on a plane and the plane starts to have turbulence, <laughs> like severe turbulence, and you're just like, well, like I'm not the pilot. This is totally out of my domain. I mean, at, at best, for those of us that believe you're going to say a prayer and you're just going to say, oh, this is just, you know, this is at the whim of whatever fate or the pilot or God, <laughs> and so. 
the night before surgery, the day of surgery, what are your, what are sort of your final thoughts? Because when they put you under, right, they're going to put you under, mm -hmm. and the assumption is I'm going to wake up, right? They're going to put me under. <laughs> they, 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 someone's counting, yeah. ten, nine, eight, whatever, mm -hmm. and then you start to fade. You know, they put you out, but. How, you know, mentally, where do you go for that? Like, the reality is that some people, like, even like Kanye West, might, some people don't wake up. Some mm -hmm. people go under, and they just don't wake up. A lot of things can go wrong. Yeah. There is no, there is no, like, perfect, anytime they're breathing for you and they have the anesthesia, there's no, there's always a risk there, mm -hmm. higher risk with you. How did you sort of make peace, and where was your mind before the surgery? Um, those those to, major surgeries. Yeah, to be honest, I think I was so concerned about my family that I didn't really stop to think about how I felt, you know? Um, because I honestly don't have an answer about how I felt. I know that I'm a big believer in things happen for a reason and happen the way they're supposed to. So as far as how I was feeling prior to it, I think it was more me being concerned for... Like, Elliot and my mom were both wrecks, <laughs> to say the least. Um, and I think I was more concerned about how they were doing than actually, like, reflecting about how I was. What carries you, what empowers you as you go through, by the way, Brooke Conway, I mean, if you haven't seen her, her husband looks like a, a movie star. She's very pretty. She's really damn strong. And so, despite what she's saying, I mean, she's very athletic uh, looking, very good looking woman. So you're still out there fighting, you're still living. Uh, you have sort of, you have that grit, that tenacity it takes to overcome things like this, but what really, what really is anchoring you? What do you lean on? Where's your, whatever, whatever you put your faith in to, to get through this and to get through each day? My family, it all comes back down to my family, honestly. Um, they help me through everything. And like I said, I just, I'm a big believer in energies and things happening for a reason. I was raised Catholic, but more as I've grown and developed, I've kind of gone away from believing in organized religion and more in just like spirituality and humanity in general, if that makes sense. Like, I don't think religion needs to be organized. I think all religions in itself come down to one belief and that's morality and love and a lot of that morality and love to me is family. So, the the great psychotherapist Viktor Frankl, who I love, he was an understudy of Sigmund Freud and and, mm -hmm. and, and Adler, and he, uh, he used to talk about people their search for meaning, and he would say that the people that he saw that were the happiest or had the the toughest hand dealt to them were able to find meaning in suffering. Mm -hmm. That was a way that they were able to cope and keep going. Have you attached meaning to your suffering? You said sort of you had this fate thing or... Absolutely. I personally don't like the word suffering because I think suffering in itself is a choice. Um, hardship and going through struggle isn't the choice, but whether you suffer because of it is, I believe. And... I absolutely, I wouldn't be the person I am if I didn't go through that stuff. And I think there's a lot of positive that comes out of everything. I tell people all the time, there's not a single thing in this world that you can't find positive out of, no matter how horrible it is. You know, I'm 
yes, things as drastically huge as Holocaust or this or that, like, yes, those are horrible, but if you look deep enough, you do find positives that come out of that as well. I mean, granted, I'm not saying it's a good thing those things happen, but good does come out of everything, and I think it's just how your perspective on it is. So that's why I don't, I don't like to use the word suffering, because I feel like by saying suffering, it's my choice to let it affect me. So... Yeah. It's interesting, and I, and I think of, as you were talking, I think of a phrase that I use a lot, which is the upside of zero, right? Mm-hmm. Nothing. I always say it's sort of nature's balance, where nature, God, will never give us... If it gives us one thing with the right hand, it would usually take away with the left. If it, yeah. if it, if it takes away with the left, if we watch, it's giving us something with the right. right? Mm-hmm. We can keep our wits and keep our sanity. Um, you talk about talk a little bit more though about those upsides, the positives, even from the perspective where you hear songs like, um, you know, "Live Each Day Like It's Your Last," right, mm-hmm. or whatever. There's a Garth Brooks song or something to that effect, yeah. or, or not, maybe it's not Garth Brooks. It's uh, I forget. It's, it's, I think it might be Miley Cyrus. <laughs> Miley Cyrus is dead, I think, maybe. But anyway, living each day. Um, like it's your last and, you, and yeah. I mean I don't know if that's the way you that you approach it but but what are the positives you've been able to pull out of so much adversity honestly there's just everything like that behind itself is what's my motivation why I've chosen to do what I'm doing because to be honest a lot of people told me I couldn't or a lot of people told me you're a girl that's why you can't do these things and you know that motivation behind people telling me like this is why you can't do this is kind of why I've always chosen to do it because maybe I guess I'm just too stubborn but I've always wanted to prove them wrong and the upside of stubborn I would say the stubborn personality (laughs) has an upside they're not they're not they're not peer pressured into anything no drugs no whatever they're not they don't just roll over easy that's the upside of a stubborn personality yeah you know and I I think that's what's always helped me I my neurosurgeon that did my most recent two surgeries he even told me he was like if you weren't who you were those that would have probably killed you he was like if you weren't as athletic as you were or as healthy as you were in a sense like what you just went through would have killed you and instead I mean literally four weeks after my most recent brain surgery is when I started my doctorate so (laughs) I was partially bald starting school did conventional medicine would they just shave your hair yeah yeah all your hair uh the back half of my head yeah oh. so you were wearing <laughs> hats a lot or you just rock you just walk around and i just went with it yeah <laughs> um we should probably get our hands on a pic some pictures of that yeah it's cute <laughs> um conventional medicine what are your views on convention of conventional medicine um i think like what's right with it and what's wrong with it? Ooh. What's right with conventional medicine and what's wrong with it? Because you, 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 were in, you were in the system for a long time, I mean, <laughs> trying to get well. Went That's going to gonna take more than an hour to get that okay, answer. Okay, well, give us a two-minute <laughs> two answer. Conventional medicine as far as you mean Western medicine? Yeah, you go okay. to the, the, the average um, experience point. I mean, again, there's different, there's a hierarchy of doctors. There's different doctors. They're each unique. Mm-hmm. But as a whole, the system on the whole, for playing the odds, you're going to go into just, you know, doctor's office. You're going to go in there with this problem. You're going to get bounced to a specialist, maybe bounced to another specialist. Yeah. What What's your experience been, your experience at least, <laughs> with conventional medicine? Well, to say the least, my experience is why I chose not to be a doctor, well, an MD doctor. Uh, 
I think the pluses, let's start the pluses. The pluses of conventional medicine is there is a lot of progression, a lot of progress, a lot of research. Um, I think it is always moving forward technologically, everything. Like, it's a good forward pace. However, I think that forward pace needs to exponentially grow because you look at other countries in the world and the U.S. is one of the worst for healthcare. And to be honest, that this whole realm is exactly why I decided to do a second P, well, do my PhD in global health because I think healthcare as it is in the U.S. is very poor and very sad because we're one of the most powerful, richest company or companies countries, but yet. <laughs> when you look at healthcare, we're one of the worst. It's very backwards. So, and to be honest, that's why once I started thinking about all this, realizing, you know, maybe there's a lot with Eastern medicine that I personally wouldn't do. I'm starting to f find more value in Eastern medicine because it's been around for thousands of years. It's all about energies and healthy living and all of that. And, you know, I think there's something to be said for that. And that's kind of why I started going towards physical therapy because physical therapy, in a sense, is the holistic overall well-being version of medicine, I feel. And especially now that physical therapy is a doctorate and it's just, I think it's moving towards more what I believe medicine should be rather than here you have high blood pressure, take this medication. I don't believe in that. <laughs> The, the word alternative medicine, I mean, it's a tricky umbrella because conventional medicine, as it involves, slowly starts to embrace. I mean, mindfulness is now in corporations, and there's a mindful element. The military's into mindfulness and breathing exercise. So we are seeing what maybe used to be called um, alternative whatever or holistic or Eastern medicine. We are seeing that, in, you know, some of that infusion. But... How much have you dabbled in what was traditionally called alternative medicine, Eastern medicine, and what have you found that actually worked for you or you think it's working for you? So what's funny is when I lived in San Francisco in undergrad, when things were starting to get really bad, I was seeing an acupuncturist. And I kind of was at the point where I'd gone to UCSF, Stanford, everywhere, and they weren't giving me answers. So I was like, you know what? Forget Western medicine. Let's try Eastern. What could it hurt? And ironically, this lady, mind you, this was way before Mayo Clinic or any of that stuff, um, this lady kept telling me that there's something wrong with your brain. And I was like, my brain's good. Like, I'm valedictorian of my class and undergrad, you know, like I'm sitting there looking at her like, you're nuts, woman. Uh, <laughs> but I loved her. But with that being said, I kept going to her and she always kept telling me like, there's something electrically, like there's something wrong with the connections. like there's something wrong with why all of a sudden it's hormone issues, kidney issues, like there are a lot of different organ systems in my body going off and she kept telling me it's because of your brain. And so I uh, kind of told one of my doctors that one time and they literally just laughed in my face. And it's funny because she was telling me this probably four or five years before Western medicine figured out it was because of my brain. So I think there's a lot intuitively that Eastern medicine looks at and sees as a holistic system that I feel like with Western medicine, we tend to forget. We specialize so much that we forget to look holistically. And that's where I think a lot of problems with Western medicine fall. What changes, whether it be alternative medicine, 
your nutrition. What changes have you made in recent years that have helped you nutritionally, mm -hmm. medicinally, maybe it'd be alternative medicine, acupuncture. Yeah. What are some of the things where you found, hey, this is helping me, this is improving me? Uh, it completely goes down to two things. Exercise, nutrition. So I eat well. I mean, I'm by no means neurotic about my eating, um, but I think eating mostly raw, organic, that has helped me a lot, um, and then I work out not as much to the extent that I used to because I've actually found that going overboard can be bad as well. Um, but just living a healthy lifestyle in general, knowing to get my sleep, knowing to control my stress levels, you know, things like that are so much more beneficial. Like, I don't take medications. I, I yeah, I mean, I. Why take, have you chosen not to take medications? Just because I have found that it starts a cascade effect to prompt. You take one and then you need to take another one. And then, and to be honest, I have found that by controlling my nutrition and my lifestyle and my workouts that I can control a lot of those issues without needing to take medications for it. And it's much healthier for my organs. I mean, I take thyroid, but that's literally the only thing I take, but it's because I don't have a thyroid anymore. <laughs> now, what's interesting, and I say with with Forza Fit, with my uh, nutrition programs, I say, I bet my life, I actually, I got blood clots above, you know, I had surgery here, a bypass mm -hmm. surgery, and then I'm gonna get blood clots above the knee. Mm -hmm. So I'm this super healthy person, super strong, and yet, at any point, one of those blood clots yeah. above the knee, break off, stroke, yeah. pulmonary embolism. So I've always, I bet my life on the program. Like, it has to work because, <laughs> And so what's interesting is I put you in the same vein where when you are practicing medicine and you have patients, you're probably going to be coming from a deeper place on an empathy level because you've been through so much. Do you think Absolutely. that there are advantages? I mean, you've had a hard road, you've had the challenges. What's the advantage when it comes to uh, you treating and you helping your patients, your clients? There's definitely some huge advantages. Um, through my doctorate, I was on a neurological rotation, and it there's pluses and minuses to being in their shoes. Pluses is I can empathize. Um, minuses, I think sometimes I tend to over-empathize, you know, and you can personalize it too much to the point where you forget to step back, you know? So I think it's that fine line of, it helps to be in their shoes, but sometimes it can hurt because you get too close to the situation. Yeah, yeah. that's so. interesting. There's a guy named Dr. Neil Elitrash, and he's out of somewhere in Los Angeles or so in mm -hmm. California, and he's famed for, he fixed Tom Brady's knee when Tom Brady was hurt, and he's done George St. Pierre in the UFC, and he's done the who's who Arnold Schwarzenegger surgeries. Anyway, he's like considered one of the preeminent orthopedic surgeons. Mm -hmm. And going back to his college days, I believe if I remember correctly, he was at University of Pittsburgh or so. And he, his mentor was like the preeminent cardiothoracic surgeon yeah. in the country. And so he was on the path to become a cardiothoracic surgeon. And he, he was having a dilemma in his mind though. 
you know, Ella Trash is a brilliant student. I mean, all of the professors knew like this, this, this guy is incredible with his hands, the dexterity of his hands and his brain and his compassion. He's got all the makings of a great surgeon. So, but Ella Trash had this dilemma. And he said he had a choice between orthopedic surgery mm -hmm. and cardiothoracic surgery. And he looked in his heart of hearts and he elected to go the orthopedic route. And he, he was so heavy because he didn't want to go to his mentor, the cardiothoracic surgeon, the mentor, and break it to him that I'm going to pick orthopedic surgery because he was so close to that mentor. And he said, what did the decision come down to? He said it came down to cardiothoracic surgery. A lot of those people are going to die. Yeah. I'm going to have a lot of people die on me. I'm going to have to go face a lot of their family and tell them, and I'm a compassionate, empathetic guy, and I'm going to carry that, and that's going to be my life. Yeah. I'm going to lose a lot of people and I'm going to have to and I'm going to carry that the way I'm mentally wired I'm going to carry that mm -hmm. so he went to orthopedic surgery on the theory that I'll be dealing with a lot more pro athletes go-getters <laughs> who aren't going to die on the gurney aren't going to die after surgery not going to have to face all those families mm -hmm. and he knew again very compassionate you know guy with a lot of empathy but consciously making a decision loved cardiothoracic loved it loved his mentor and would have done it, would have picked that route, but for that one. Aspect. Oh, I got, I got a face. I got, I can't do that. I can't carry because it is. Well, you're right. You, you, thank you for raising that point because I hadn't expected that. But yeah. Um. So the the arc of this of of your life, when you look at the arc, twenty eight years. Where, where did you grow up? Originally San Francisco? Uh, no, right outside of Tahoe area. Outside of Tahoe? Yeah. So outdoors, where you're into mm -hmm. skiing and all that stuff. Yep. And what did your parents do? Uh, my mom worked for the legislature and my dad owns his own company. And how many siblings? Just a younger brother. What do you remember most about your childhood? <laughs> I did gymnastics, so that was kind of the majority of my childhood probably. <laughs> Um, so your parents then, were just constantly driving you to it or from or what? Oh yeah, yeah, my poor mom. Uh, <laughs> between that and then my brother raced motocross professionally, so she was, yeah. But um, probably that and then we, growing up in that area, we're always out on the boat every weekend. So I was either at gymnastics during the week, on the boat on the weekend, one of the two. What do you remember being good at earliest? What, what came natural when you were young? What came natural early? Obviously, it was sort of the bio, the, the moving mm -hmm. movement and body control. and um, Like, as athletics-wise or just in general? Anything? Yeah, so like me, for instance, when I was nine, I was writing songs and making songs about my friends. And that was the first skill I really ever remember <laughs> having was just, I'm going to start making songs about them or nickname them. And yeah. That was the first skill was words and songs. And so you you first noticed what, what talent when you look back and you say, I had two things random but uh math i was kind of weird with numbers like goodwill hunting status weird with numbers and then and you don't use it now no ironically i um, you have a power that by, you don't use by like my junior year of high school i was done with calc four i was really good at math i loved it but then i started realizing what can you do with i to be honest it was it would have been math or med school like but I was like, what can you really do with a math degree <laughs> besides be a statistician? Which ironically now, I'm going back doing epidemiology and that's pretty much 
what I guess so I guess indirectly yes I am using my math it's just in a medical aspect rather than straight pure numbers but by the way why do you need to be have two doctorates I mean that's a lot one is a lot why do you need two what, uh, what, what wasn't covered under the physical ther therapy umbrella that has to be covered with the global health apparently I like school a lot no uh, physical therapy is a clinical doctorate so that is physical therapy chiropractic med school those all kind of lump into the same type of doctorate whereas the global health and epidemiology are research doctorates so they're both doctorates but in two different arenas I guess you can say mm -hmm. um, so one's for more clinical practitioner aspect the other one's more research development and the reason I want to do the global health is I see like I said physical therapy being something in the next 10 20 years much bigger than what it is now i see it being one of the main primary care arenas and you see it changing and evolving as you said with sort of the holistic energy exactly taking into account because yeah. there is a direct energy there's even an energy exchange i mean so much of what you talk about that what you you see it changing and evolving happening i do and there is one doctor that i had met along the lines of everything and he made the most brilliant but simple comment and it really resonated with me he said in medicine we understand 20% of it the other 80% most likely is going to be fixed by something we already know and he had such a he's an MD but he had such a simplistic view on medicine that we try to make things like I said so advanced and so difficult but really when it comes to the human body and health sometimes the best fix is what's the most simple and the most simple in my mind is the physicality your body moving and that's what physical therapy is and that's why I feel like yes medicine's incredible different technological advances are amazing but for the majority of problems I don't think that's the cure and our medical model is based off the disease model but the problem is, is we have millions of different disease processes in our body, but to base our entire model off of the infectious disease model, that's only fixing that small minuscule percent of diseases. The rest of the other millions of diseases aren't fixed by that model. But what is fixed by that model is if you look from a cellular basis at any cell in the body, to change how the cell functions, you have to change its environment. And what else besides changing your movements, changing how your body functions, are you going to change that cell's environment? Brooke, in your quest to heal yourself, to educate yourself, education you're going to pass on eventually to all the people you work with, in your quest, some of the books or some of the voices or some of the leaders that you've looked to that have what have you learned from them what are maybe some of the names maybe we might recognize them or books where do you look and you say i like i'm taking from that i'm borrowing from that i'm borrowing from that oh there's a lot what I mean, just jumps to mind general life aspects i love socrates i love the questions and not answering <laughs> um, that's more philosophical from but I'm a philosophy major, so that's fine by me. Okay, by the there way. you go. <laughs> you can be esoteric and, and abstract all you want here. And you guys got to, if, if you get used to this podcast, you got to get used to that. The real stuff. That's the, the layers behind the layers that, you know. The, yeah. The, um, so from basis of just my beliefs, that's 
I I very much love his beliefs on that. Um, but then some of my professors that were incredible that really changed and honed down on what I believe with medicine and stuff, um, Dr. Puentadora and Dr. Lowe, they're two of the bigger pain neuroscience doctors and physical therapists and stuff. And they look at, because chronic pain is such an issue in the United States and the opiate epidemic and all that. And they're looking at why do people have chronic pain? How do you fix it? Because throwing opioids at them does not fix it. And they're actually seeing that pain in itself is such a huge complex thing. It's not as simple as what a lot of old school medical practitioners think of as the gate theory. Like that's not how pain works anymore. Um, so people like that are huge, huge, huge guiding factors for what I see our profession moving into. It's interesting. My TEDx talk that I gave in January at University of Nevada was originally supposed to be on pain because just because I've been in, in, the, in the combat sports space for so long and titanium plate in the neck and bypass surgeries, broken hands, broken noses. So I wanted to speak about pain and then they were excited. They loved the topic and it was just going to be from my experience and, and strategies for coping and they loved the topic and they green-lighted, the, the, the TEDx people green-lighted that topic but as we went along they said listen TEDx has these uh, stringent scientific criteria and it's possible Frank if you were to maybe rock the boat or you know cross the line it could be subject to more scientific scrutiny and your speech might not see the light of day beyond yeah. the live audience yeah. it won't see YouTube it'll just be <laughs> dead and so I didn't I said okay well we switched the topic and we changed it to ego and, ma and managing the ego but this chronic pain thing is so fascinating and I've spent so much time personally around it and as you have like with research you've done much more on the medical side but uh, I certainly tried to wrap my brain around it as well I want to ask you this though so we do have an opioid I think I saw the opioid opioids kill more people in recent years than you know car accidents homicide I mean it's, it's mind-blowing right it's like 66 I think it's like 60 some thousand deaths a year I mean it's it's you know the president's sounding alarms on it everybody knows it now uh, you know, the, the, the doctors that were just writing the prescriptions and making millions are running for cover. Mm -hmm. Not not all doctors, but the, the, the specific, specific doctors yeah. that were doing that. But but I want to ask, did you ever use any opioids? I mean, other than when maybe you were on the surgery where you had to, you know, did, did they ever, were they writing you those? Oh, and were you absolutely. And, and at what point did you say, hey, I don't want to, what, what, what made you say, I don't want to be on these things? Because yeah. maybe, maybe, it, maybe it didn't take a news story. You didn't need to be, you're a smart yeah. girl. You didn't need to see news headlines and be like, I don't want to be taking opioids a long time. I mean, I, they absolutely, it's actually disgusting how easily inaccessible painkillers were. I mean, in the past two, three years, it's gotten better. But still, I mean, after all my surgeries, I don't know how many times they just told me, stay on these every four hours, blah, blah, blah. And I mean, granted, I had four, five surgeries in a period of a couple years. Literally in three years, I had five surgeries. So take that and consider how much doctors just give you narcotics after surgery. And I very much felt my body, like I'm a very strong-willed person, but even for me, I felt after one of my surgeries, like I started to feel like I needed them. And as soon as I felt that, I it honestly scared me. I was like, done, no more, I can't do this. Like, 
because it didn't come from the doctor. It came from you. It didn't. Oh, it the doctor fully. wasn't saying, "Hey, you shouldn't probably take these." No, the doctor was just right. No, because especially being which surgeries I did have, like no one could have blamed me probably for yeah. quote needing yeah. them. You might have actually it would have yeah. helped you maybe in, at least in terms of pain yeah. alleviation. Exactly. Um, so I mean, by no means did I get to an point where I abused them, but I did get to a point where my body physically felt like I needed them and that's when it scared me because I've always we've had a lot of addiction and stuff like that in our family and by feeling that was the first time that I really understood that like people don't do this because they innately are trying to be addicts or trying to be bad it's it's scary how your body starts changing and feeling like it needs it and when I felt that that's when so now to this day like I don't take Advil, I don't take painkillers, like it, I, I don't take any of it, because When you were on the opioid, did, did you feel like, how did you feel as a person, your day-to-day, did you still work out, did you still have the same zest and, oh, and, and, and vibrance for life? No, and that was another thing I didn't like, um, granted I wasn't on it for like months and months at a time, um, but no, it, it does, it makes you very depressed. I. After one of my surgeries, I went through a very, very tough time where I didn't feel like myself. Um, yeah, you just you feel like a shell of a person. You don't feel there. In terms of your study, since you spent so much time, I'm envious, by the way. You know, they call us in jujitsu. If you have a black belt, they call you professor. And <laughs> we 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 we're only usually called professor in the gym environment. Right? Like, professor, professor, and it's such a wonderful thing. Anybody who tells you different is lying to you. Like it's awesome when people are like professor, professor, and you're like, oh, please call me Frank. But really, you actually like when they call you professor. It's like yes, professor. But outside of there, we're not professor. So I'm envious of the whole doctor thing. Do- doctor Frank would help me a lot. I think I'd have. <laughs> <laughs> a lot more people listening but but so you've studied so much and is that like I think of this with writing I always talk about writing writing is such a lonely endeavor like creating being a writer because it's done like this is this is fun this is conversational yeah. I have a live person here you have energy but when you're writing it's you it's a piece of paper it's a screen and so I'm assuming that a lot of your studies your medical studies go that way is there a lot of time alone is it is it a lot of solitude pretty much yes and no um definitely during the studying portion but that's one of the perks to physical therapy is it's a very interactive medical degree you know it's you can't do physical therapy unless i mean like they've been starting to talk about a lot of telehealth and stuff like that and i feel like that takes so much away from what physical therapy is like physical therapy is that human interaction um so yeah definitely I mean, there are times that you're alone, but I'd say for the most part, our profession as a whole is a very human-oriented profession. Now, when we look at people in life, whatever, motivation, human achievement, we always say, well, what's your goal, right? What are people aiming at? Mm -hmm. What's the end game? And so for you, you're 28, you've got an awesome family, you're fighting the good fight, you're working on your second doctorate, you are... You know, you're sort of like, I would say, like, you're in the business of being in, like, an odds-defier. You're in the odds-defying business. You're going to beat <laughs> the odds, right? You're going you're gonna to beat this. You're going to conquer this. What is sort of the end game? Do you think in long terms, do you think in, have you even given a thought to 20 years ahead, 30 years ahead, 50 years ahead? What's sort of the end game of, like, 
these are the this is the these are the boxes I want to check in this life. <laughs> and how um, long does that stretch out? I think that's a very broad. I I tend to have very big dreams. Um, it'd be nice to make them a reality, which I plan to. But so yes, end goal. I would love to actually teach. Ironically, in a med school, I would love to be a professor. Kind of. Not now, not 10 years, but maybe 15, 20 year, 10, 15 years down the road once I am settled, a lot of research behind me, a lot of stuff. Um, yeah, being a professor, professor in the med school to teach more of a functional medicine, to teach more of this integration. I think something like that in a medical program would be incredible. And so I think I would love to teach in that aspect rather than in physical therapy because physical therapy they get it that's why they're there but I would love to teach it in a different medical profession to help broaden that mindset um, I would love to be one of those people to help push our profession and our country forward into what I feel like it could be and has potential to be so do you feel like you have a handle now in what's going on with you physically do you mm -hmm. feel like I have a handle on it and and you feel like you have you're armed with everything to conquer or do you feel like there's still a lot more to go and things you just you don't know or do you feel like no I had a handle on it and I would say right now that I'm kicking its butt and I'm going to be well and good whatever one year two years tomorrow where, where do you feel on that I definitely feel like I would say I'm more towards the spectrum of having a handle I don't think it can ever be everything's perfect and it's a solidified endpoint um, but because it is a continuous thing I mean I'm in my 20s I mean drinking alcohol I will suffer for a week after you know like that's stuff that people in their teens 20s like you have a few drinks it's no big deal you know whereas for me if I drink two or three glasses of wine I will be miserable for at least a week later so you know those are things that it's more of a conscious effort on my part it's not as much I'm sick I need to get better but more of a maintenance of being aware of lifestyle and personal choices now Elliot you and Elliot have been together how many years mm, almost six I think yeah yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and, and he's been with you through all of this yes and a lot of people might leave, right? A lot of people oh. might, I mean, people just, hey, <laughs> I've told him plenty of times I wouldn't blame him if he yeah, did. Yeah, <laughs> too much. He, he didn't leave. No. And so. God help him. <laughs> you've been really lucky in, in that regard, too. You have someone who's gonna, he's standing by you for the, for the whole, you know, for the whole way. And, yeah. And, and, because uh, I remember I had, a, I, I worked at UFC and, um, and there was a security guard there who used to just talk a lot. He knew everything about everybody. Like again, mm -hmm. people would think like the security guard's just this uh, low on the totem pole guy. This guy knew everything about everybody. Like he knew like every, uh, you know, like he had the, the details on everybody. <laughs> and he used to say, you know, one of the guys he had uh, his, his kid had had a lot of problems. The kid was really sick and everything. And he said, uh, he said that the wife is really lucky because the vast majority of those men will be long gone. Yeah. And I know when I worked for the Review Journal, I would cover someone got a you know was in a coma a girl homecoming night was in a coma and the parents you know sticking through thick and thin always it's like that's not normal actually. Yeah. normal is okay this is too much this you marriage is whatever I'm out of here yeah. this is too much but you've you've had you know you're with somebody that really 
cares about you. So I guess talk about talk about love, like love in the middle of all of these challenges, and what what is it that makes it work? Uh, I mean, it'd be lovely to be the romantic and say, oh, it's just because we're soulmates and it's all perfect. I mean, granted, I think we are, but it's that's not what keeps us together. Um, I think we're both very much on the same page with how we believe about stuff, and if we want it bad enough, you can make it work. You know, it's not easy by any means. We have been through our huge ups and downs through the past several years, and we've both stuck by each other through a lot, you know, and some of the biggest milestones in both of our lives have come in these past few years, and we've gone through it together, and we've been through it more in this many years than <laughs> most people go through in a lifetime. So I think it's more that mutual understanding that as long as we're willing to work on it and work towards a common goal, you can make it through this stuff. It doesn't mean like that it's true love and that's what gets us through it. It's the hard work that goes behind that love that I remember one of the best pieces of advice because I was from Baltimore and in inner city Baltimore, like no one's dad is around, right? It's like all <laughs> these single moms raising the kids. Yeah. And uh, so when I was a teenager and, and, and I would started dating and then the girl would be like, I want you to meet my, my parents, you know, parents, plural. And that was like the craziest thing to be like, wow, like, like I'm going to meet They're like two parents. Yeah. I thought like, <laughs> I'm just going to meet her mom. Right. I mean, nobody has a dad around. And then when I went and I moved to the suburbs and I had some close friends and they had the mom and the dad and the mom and the dad were married like 20 years and I was like my mind was blown I was like I just want to sit here and talk to them there's like aliens right like I'm gonna just talk to these parents and and so one of the best pieces of advice I got I was like 15 years old this guy Phil Albert who was a division one football coach and his best piece of advice was don't let the sun go down on your anger no matter what happened in the course of the day no matter what arguments that was one thing that he imparted yeah. so in that vein what you've learned about love through your family, through Elliot, through all of this, and you've got two kids, what sorts of, what are a couple things you would teach them that you're really mindful of? Like if there are like little pearls of wisdom like that, is there anything that, that stands out? Like I would, I would tell them. Don't give up. If you want something bad enough, you can make it happen. And that's including life, love, anything. It's don't give up. I feel like a lot of times when people give up, it's not because they're innately lazy, but it's because either one, they don't think they're worth it, or two, they don't think what they're working towards worth it. And if you want something bad enough, you can make it work. So I think that's kind of my answer for life and love, both. What is your, we talk a lot about people, their sense of purpose, the why that's driving them. What's the why? Is it just survival? Is it something deeper? What is driving you as you heal, as you accumulate, rack up doctorates? What, what, what is the thing at the, at the, behind all that that's really driving you? That's a good question. Maybe just my constant interest. Uh, when I was a kid, my mom used to get so mad at me, which I never understood now until I have a daughter who's just like me. <laughs> but my mom used to get so mad because I asked why about everything. And I think that's kind of still who I am. Like, I am always the person who wants to know why. And I think that's why I continually keep getting more doctors, why I keep going to school, because I don't think I've answered that yet. And to answer that why, I think, is much bigger than 
a simple answer because I don't really have an answer to the why behind it. It's just I know that what I'm looking for and trying to understand in life, I don't fully grasp yet. So I'm going to keep looking for it. Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't have, I didn't, I couldn't pinpoint my why at 28 either. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but I was still out there trying to do a lot of stuff, right? And that's part of the process of figuring out. We're getting, we're getting down the home stretch here, but yesterday I interviewed a guy named Robert Drysdale, who's a jiu-jitsu black belt, gave me my black belt in 2010, and we were talking about sort of the, what I would call the happy conundrum, and the happy conundrum is, he's like, Frank, the happiest people I ever met, he's been in those favelas in Brazil, the poorest of the poorest, like, they're the happiest people I've ever met. Yeah. Like, they don't have really high expectations, they smile easy, mm -hmm. and yet, and then on the other hand, you have these high achievers, people like me and him, and we're like, you know, we're going to move heaven and earth to try to climb the mountain come what may and and yet a lot of times we're not as happy we're not as fulfilled we're, we're winning things we're doing things but we're not as happy fulfilled because the bar is so much higher right Absolutely. and we're, we're falling or flat on our face because the bar just keeps getting higher and higher and higher and we're we're chasing sometimes you don't even you lose sight of what, what exactly am i trying to chase here like mm -hmm. what exactly is it going to take yeah. to fulfill me and so you have these two ends one on the one you people who might be Hey, just aim low, you'll be really happy. Be easily contented. Yep. But then on the other hand, if you're easily contented, then you then you sort of scratch the surface of potential. So that's sort of the happy conundrum. I guess your thoughts on being happy and, and where to you know, where, where do you fall on that spectrum of, of like the person, the high achiever who's not easily satisfied, the bar's constantly being raised, you're constantly falling person who's just like look I got I got a nice meal here and I got my friends I'm good yeah I mean I definitely am always I think that's a big spectrum that you're not always in one spot on yes I'm always trying to increase my achievements but I also as I've grown as I've gone through stuff I've started to find a lot of purpose behind simplicity and again, that's what drives me back to physical therapy. I, my life, everything revolves around, I find simplicity to be huge in life, in health, in everything. And the more simplistic you can make it, the better. So yes, I thrive from simplicity, but yes, I'm also still trying to drive forward. So I don't really have a straight answer for that yeah. because... Well, I like that because at the end yeah. of the day, simple life. I, I've learned that yeah. if you're if, if someone's not going to be happy with the simple things, they'll never be happy. Exactly. They just won't. I, I, and that's what I would say after my 46 years is like, you, so you're yeah. you're way ahead of where I was at, at 28. <laughs> so like, yeah. Um, Brooke, where can people find you if they want to email you, a website, social media, et cetera? Where, how can people find you? Um, well, I'm actually the founder and president of a nonprofit, so people can go to the nonprofit's website. Uh, it's neuroactivefoundation.org. So that would probably be the quickest way to get a hold of me. This is uh, Frank Forza, the Life Jitsu Art of Life podcast. I'm here. My guest is Brooke Conway Clevin, who has uh, she's working on her second doctorate. And she's got uh, quite the story, very mentally tough, sort of the art of grit, and uh, a lot thrown at her at a young age. And she is uh, just very in inspiring and strong woman. So um, again, if you would like to email me, or my, my website's www.frankieforza.com. The email is frankie at uh, frankieforza.com for any feedback, questions, etc. 
Um, Brooke, it's been an absolute pleasure. We can maybe even do it again, maybe do a video interview sometime. There's a lot more ground to cover. I know you've got to get uh, somewhere, but it's been an absolute pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. And um, way ahead of where I was. I mean, I, yeah, <laughs> like I said, I didn't have, I, I didn't have uh, uh, 28. I was not, you know, in the doctorate that young is, is really impressive. So thank you so much. And I look forward to just staying apprised of your journey and, you know, and learning you. about it and where it's going to go and how you're healing. So thank, thank you. you so much. I appreciate it.